Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to James Cameron. Previously on Blockbuster. It's the abyss, and uh, is it going to be like one of these big ones, like Batman or some of the others that have? It's hard to say. All right. You know? uh, <laughs> All right. That's lunch, everyone. What is the stupidest thing a director can do? Fall in love with your leading lady? Yes. Are you telling me you've done that? Hey, Jim. It's Al Giddings. There's a screening at the Academy this week. I think it's right down your alley and worth the time. Oh, that—that's just amazing. Hey, Peter. Jim. It's a love story. <laughs> well, isn't every film? And is there a Terminator involved? No, no, no. Not like that. <laughs> Romeo and Juliet on the Titanic. Uh, okay. Yeah? Let's do this. I'm Matt Schrader, and Blockbuster starts now. Really choppy waters out there. It'll settle down soon. September 7th, 1995. James Cameron was worried he was getting too old for this, embarking on the most perilous underwater journey of his life, a mission to the remains of the Titanic, so secretive only the crew on board and a few executives at Fox knew about it. They even had a decoy title for the project. They were all instructed to use the name Planet Ice if anyone asked questions. Told you it'll quiet down. James was scared. He knew any dive this deep could end in disaster. <laughs> what did he say? No idea. Their team was aboard a massive Russian research vessel, the Keldish. A large and specialized crew had sailed to GPS coordinates nearly halfway across the Atlantic Ocean. When they arrived, the plan was to plop down a submersible and descend more than 12,000 feet to water pressures greater than the force of a bomb. James pretended to be all business, rehearsing his dives with a small crew, but he was fighting off the nerves. Well, those better be well lit. You know it'll be pitch black down there. Oh, they are. They, these are HMIs. We'll, we'll light her up good. Just don't want the encasements to break, you know? Ah, the pressure. Yeah, it could puncture the sub. <sighs> James and his little brother, Michael Cameron, had helped build the lighting rigs and camera systems mounted on a small blimp-like submersible that they would ride to the ocean floor. They also had a smaller remote vehicle they called Snoop Dog. Snoop had a 100-foot tether with a camera they could pan and tilt to film shots for James' movie. And they'd all become experts in how to operate every part of the sub and its equipment, especially James. He'd engineered a top-secret scientific excursion he was sure even his father could appreciate. We are right now, gentlemen. What did he say? Ha, huh. we're here. The sky was gray, cold, the water choppy, and already things were moving on board. The white hydraulic arm lowered the submersible into the splashing water. There was room for just three people on board, and James insisted he was going to be one of them. All right, let's load up. We drop in tomorrow morning. This is Blockbuster. The story of James Cameron. Episode 8.
All right, see you in the sunshine. James, his cinematographer and camera designer Al Giddings, and Russian oceanographer and pilot Anatoly Sigalovich loaded into the 21-foot-long sub, each dressed in light blue nylon suits. They'd be sharing the same cramped seven-foot-wide cabin for the majority of the next 24 hours. Motors, check, check. Lights, check, check. Hatch is secure, over. After testing all systems, they were ready to begin their dive. In theory, they'd have radio contact with the Keldish on the surface the whole time. We are go. Over. We are for descent. Over. Roger, roger. All right, here we go. And release, release, release. All right, we lose all daylight in a thousand feet. That's about 25 minutes or so. All right. Then just 12 times further down. Total descent time, three and a half hours. Anatoly, hope you know some jokes. You want to hear a joke? <laughs> Anatoly was sometimes quiet. Once there was a big fire at KGB headquarters. Mm. Totally destroyed. A man called to report a crime. They say, no, we cannot do anything. The KGB has just burned down. Five minutes later, men call again. And it's told KGB burned down. Nothing they can do. Then many calls a third time. KGB says, I just told you, the KGB burned down. I know, the men say. I just like to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great one. Amazing. Don't tell KGB. <laughs> the trio watched out the hatch as the teal blue water turned cobalt, then navy, and finally pitch black. It's like another planet down here. We'll have about... 12 minutes of film once we get there, so we'll use sparingly. Then we come back up, decompress, replenish oxygen, switch out the film, do it all again. How many times, Jim? However many it takes. Ha! And doesn't kill us. They were bundled up in warm clothes, which made the space seem even smaller. The temperature inside their sub would reach 35 degrees Fahrenheit near the ocean floor, near freezing. The entire round trip could take anywhere from 6 to 16 hours on their supplies. A newer technology they'd planned to use wasn't working right, so they were resorting to a good old-fashioned radar. The radar blips measured distance to the bottom and a large mass beneath them. Well, we're right above her. We'll bring us backwards slightly. Let's not get too close until we have a visual. Sounds good. 500 feet from ocean floor. A uh, fun fact for you guys, at this depth, the pressure is so great that even a tiny razor puncture in the sub would create a jet stream that'll cut right through human flesh like a laser beam. That sure is a fun fact. Thanks for that, Jim. Sounds like Russian joke. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you keep those to yourself until we get back up. Let's just not hit anything. Roger that. Slow descent, right on truck. 400 feet. You want to fire up the lights? Yeah. By now, James knew every inch of this mini-sub, from lights and cameras to the sub itself. If anything went wrong, he felt it was his responsibility to know what to do and how to do it. The high beams powered on outside the hatch. A rich blue glow filled the space around their sub. They were nearing the bottom, according to radar. The water was cloudier, dustier. Particles illuminated by their lights made it harder to see. Now stop and descent. 
we'll look around before we land. Alright, she should be right in front of us. You see anything? Uh, can't see anything. What was that? We lost the light. We're all right. We're all right. I, I, I don't see anything. Uh, can we give her a little push forward? Roger that. As they inched forward gently, the floating particle seemed to fade away. Oh, holy shit. Oh, stop, 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 stop. Right ahead of them was a big steel wall with rivets. Do you guys see that? It, oh, oh, oh my god. It's the hull of the ship. Caldish, we have a visual. We have a visual. We made it. We made it. Congrats, guys. <laughs> Congrats, Jim. James pressed his nose against the window. Titanic's iron chassis stretched as far as their lights could reach. Wow. It's unbelievable. He was more overcome with emotion than he expected to be. Hundreds of lives had been lost here, aboard this great ghost ship, now buried in a world beyond. He wiped a tear from his eye. You all right, Jim? Yeah, yeah, I just didn't expect it to be so real. Even more important to James than just capturing this footage would be conveying this emotional significance he was feeling. All of those passengers who'd perished. The currents at the bottom of the ocean were unusually strong and required Anatoly's constant attention to keep a balance. They waited for another cloud of dust to settle before taking in the scene. It's enormous. Incredible to think that there were 2,200 people on board. You want to take Snoop Dogg for a walk? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Roger that. Launching Snoop Dogg. Over. James and Al had what looked like arcade game controls for their remote camera, a joystick, buttons, each propelling their custom-built underwater drone on a leash. Groundbreaking technology. Shall we move in? Let's give it a shot. James and his crew watched the monitors in their sub, sending back the picture from Snoop as he dove deeper and deeper. Now entering Titanic. They entered the ship near the top and made their way into the grand staircase, which was a large open pit five decks down through the center of the ship. Wow, is that, is that a chandelier? Sure looks like it covered in rusticles. Look at that. Just just totally overgrown. Wow. Deep sea animals just filter feeding in the current. Are we running out of tether? Uh, getting close. Got another 30 feet or so. Alright. Let's go in. Go in? Onto one of the floors. Snoop turned and began to fly forward. James had studied every room of the ship and knew the layout by heart. The grayish-green rusticles covered what was once shiny and glamorous when the ship first sank. Now, it looked like an underwater grotto cave. It was hard to even relate to it now unless you knew how it once looked. Getting really tight in here, Jim. And that's it for the tether. Wow, wow. You see that? Al, can you tilt down to the fireplace? Wow. Is that alive? Yeah, it, it's a, a crab crawling along. <laughs> This was one of the most fulfilling moments of James' life. 
buried deep in the ocean in exploration. He couldn't help but notice the signs of life, the warmth that once filled the most barren of places on Earth. Imagine this thing in all its glory. It must have been beautiful. They planned to make multiple dives, sometimes 16 hours for the better part of three weeks. There was a lot to explore. The ship had broken apart when it sank, so the back end, or stern, was about a third of a mile away and required its own trip. By now, this small team and James felt like experts. After all, they'd spent more days with this ship than its original passengers did. There it is. Wow. Look at the size of those propellers. Hey, hey, slow it down. Slow it down. Engines are off. We're still moving. Anatoly? It's the current. An unusually strong hurricane season had created a new bottom current they hadn't anticipated. It was carrying their sub toward the hull of the ship. Small sponges on the ocean floor tumbled as the current picked up. Engines on, fly us out. I am trying. Fuck, fuck, we're gonna hit. Tolly, can she survive a hit? I don't know. The sub swayed off balance and they all watched helplessly as the sub got closer and closer to the iron hull. Here we go, guys. Fuck. Are we okay? I, I don't know. Not good. And it's not pulling us out. We are stuck. They were trapped in a vortex, pinned against the ship and being dragged up, scraping the side. Anatoly reached for his radio. Keldish, Keldish, come in. They are pinned against the ship. Over. You guys are way off course. Oh, shit. What are you guys doing? What did he say? Repeat. Repeat, come in, mirror one. Come in. If this thing punctures, we're dead. The current rolled the sub against the side of the wreckage to reveal a dangerous mess ahead of tangled wire and jagged metal. Reverse thrust, give me the control. Do you read me? Whoa, 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 whoa. Whoa, whoa. Hold on. The camera! Forget the camera. I got it, I got it, I got it. James struggled to maintain control of the camera's steering wheel, trying to turn it so the mechanical arm wouldn't break off if it hit something. The sub had slipped free and been slingshotted across the top of the Titanic, narrowly missing the sharp edges and beams of the wreckage. Reverse thrust. We are going to hit surface. How long do we have if the glass breaks? Two ten thousandths of a second, we're dead. Reverse thrust. Coming in fast. They all watched the ocean floor get closer and braced for impact and the thunder crack of an implosion. An enormous amount of fine dust and silt enveloped the sub a cloud of darkness around them. But the sub held. Do you read me? Do you read me? We read you. Over. What the hell is going on down there? <laughs> oh my god. Are we still alive? Uh, what do you say we abort today's mission, guys? Yes. Abort mission, abort mission. We're, we're coming back up. Over. 
As the silt settled outside their hatch, they realized the sub was at a 45-degree angle. The batteries had drained due to their attempts to escape the current, and at 12,600 feet, they were stuck. Mir-1, come in, over. Mir-1, do you read me? Over. Yes, Jim, do you read me? Jim, do you read me? God damn it, what's wrong with this thing? It is on their side. Something blocking the signal. How do we get in touch? We wait until they move. A little, not much. Well, I've been wanting to use the emergency system. What's that do? It releases some extra weight, makes us more buoyant. It should be enough lift. Tolly? I think so. Do it. The submersible released about 200 pounds of emergency weight on the outside enough to pull them free and start their slow bobbing rise. Are we loose? We're loose. Oh, thank God. How long do you think, Tolly? Not enough to pump us light. So, at least six, seven hours, I suppose. James and crew shut off power to conserve the last of their energy and settled in for the ride up, grateful to have escaped a near-death experience. They would splash up a mile and a half away from the research vessel, but the rescue team had no problem finding them. Even 84 years after Titanic tried and failed to tame the ocean itself, James realized nature was still very much in charge. The Keldish was 422 feet long, the largest research vessel in the world, constructed during the Cold War. Each room was bugged with microphones and speakers, wired to a small listening room on board. After the fall of the Soviet Union, the Russian researchers had removed the door from that room and now used it as a booth to broadcast music for parties instead. Today, they were celebrating as the first developed film footage was being flown in. Hey, the footage is back! A plane carrying a small bundle appeared near the vessel and veered off to the side for clearance releasing its cargo into the air about a hundred feet up. Once retrieved, James and the crew pulled out the reels of film inside this waterproof package to feed into a film projector on board. The first images were like a dream. Beautiful, high-resolution pictures documented in impeccable detail. Wow. This is incredible. Really special, Jim. The footage lifted the spirits of everyone after a tiring few days of danger and uncertainty. 
To many, this was proof of a mission accomplished. The Russians broke out bottles of vodka Cheers. and urged James to give a toast. Uh, to you guys, Anatoly, and the whole crew of the Keldish uh, Zanashu Druzhbu. On one of James' final dives, they'd successfully parked their little mini-sub on the great front deck of the Titanic. Before getting to work, they decided to have lunch where the passengers did, gazing out their windows at the marvel of this great ship. Gene, would you like some tea? Oh, uh, yes, please. You know, when you're not about to die, this is not bad at all. You think they'll let me make it? The movie? They'll have to now. Oh, it's, it's just so big. All this, this state-of-the-art, unsinkable ship uh, can fail. All the money lost, all the lives. And despite that, the thing that can endure is this idea of human connection, you know, love. That's what's really precious. That is really powerful, that message. It's an enormous responsibility. We have to do everything just perfect. It has to be perfect. When James, Al, and Anatoly splashed back up to the ocean surface for the last time, they were exhausted. But James planned to convince 20th Century Fox chairman Bill Mechanic to give the green light on Titanic had worked. James would be given control of an enormous crew in multiple countries and languages, anchored by the stunning, real-life footage of the ship. Unlike his previous films, Titanic was based on a real event, and it demanded the best from the studio and everyone involved. Titanic would be James Cameron's magnum opus, and 20th Century Fox braced for what James had told David Letterman would never happen a film close to $120 million. James was back on land near Nova Scotia and calling his parents who only knew a little about his planned Titanic dive. James was eager to tell his father in particular about his scientific excursion. Hello. Hey, Mom, it's, it's Jim. Jim. I know it's your voice. I'm your mother. <laughs> I, how are you? Well, we've been worried sick about the submarine dive. Well, we did it. You saw it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What was it like? It was huge. You know, totally overrun by rusticles and, and sediment now. And, and you filmed it? Yeah. We, we saw the grand staircase, these amazing high-end stately rooms, you know. Oh, Jimmy. You know who would really love this? Your father. Is Dad in? Philip, he did it. He went to the Titanic. He what? His parents were getting older, now in their 60s, and Philip's hearing wasn't quite what it used to be. He dove down to the shipwreck. And even though James had several big action movies under his belt, Philip held firm in the belief that James was capable of more. Uh, here, tell your father. Hello? Oh, hello. Hey, hey, Dad. Oh, hey, son. So what's uh, this about a shipwreck? Well, we, uh, I dove down in a mini-sub to the shipwreck of the Titanic. You know, it, it sunk in yeah. 1912. And, I know uh, the Titanic. 
Oh, well, we went all the way down there, you know, and, and I, I went with this uh, Russian crew, and we, we thought we might die on one of those trips. We, we actually crashed into it. <laughs> you crashed into the shipwreck? Yeah, yeah. That sounds pretty dangerous. Well, we've we got to film it somehow, Dad. I suppose so. Was that the only thing you did on the trip? It wasn't for any scientific research? Well, we kind of were the research. Uh, people have never done that kind of stuff before down there. It just seems an awful waste to go to all that effort just to shoot a movie. As they said their goodbyes, James felt uneasy. He was disappointed his dad wasn't all that impressed by his dives. They were remarkable feats. But James realized those were words he'd probably never hear from his father. Construction began on a full-scale Titanic, or at least the exterior of it, in spring 1996. A huge construction project on a man-made pond near the ocean in Rosarito, Mexico. It was four hours down the coast from Los Angeles. The ship was built on a platform that could tilt so they could film the sinking sequences. In all, it would take months to build, and Fox started to build a small studio lot around it. They slated Titanic as their big summer blockbuster for the next year, releasing on July 4, 1997. And James knew it was time to find his cast. Stay tuned for a preview of the next episode of Blockbuster and a short conversation about this episode. Hey, I'm Ross Marquand. I play the role of James Cameron in Blockbuster. Thanks so much for listening, and be sure to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. On the next episode of Blockbuster. Kate? Hello again. And Leo. Hello. Hey, Mr. Cameron. Cut! Cut! What's the issue with the lighting here? Filming begins on the biggest production of all time. Damn it, we're not set up. Just wasting everyone's time here. Tensions flare in Nova Scotia. Hey, 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 stop it, stop it, stop it, help, help! And 20th Century Fox begins to panic. If you're gonna try to fire me, you're gonna have to kill me! Jim! That's coming up on Episode 9 of Blockbuster, the story of James Cameron. I'm series creator Matt Schrader. Hey, I'm the sound designer Peter Bovitz. And this is our creator chat about episode eight. You just heard from Blockbuster, the story of James Cameron. During production, we called this the underwater episode. And mm. the sound design in this one is just superb. Well, it, it's a big one, right? Because we opened up the season with the submarine, with the dive. But that was just the first three or four minutes of the episode, and that was it. But now we come back, and I have this timetable of the whole show, all 10 episodes. And I always saw episode eight as this like big red blob because it's so complicated. Mm -hmm. <laughs> We're in a submarine for, you know, 25 minutes and it's a lot of work to make it interesting and to make it claustrophobic, right? Because we're plunging 12 and a half thousand feet. Yep. Uh, 3.8 kilometers uh, into the middle of the untamed Atlantic Ocean, right? Yep. And we wanted to kind of put everyone in that submarine as much as we could on a podcast format. There's obviously the sound of kind of the underwater sound, but also they're in a submarine. Lots of oh, yeah. lots of things are happening. You've got the submarine. You've got the engines. You've got the ventilation system. You've got buttons, beeps, all the crash 
Uh, a lot of things are happening in there, and you know, dialogue ends up piling on itself in moments of panic. And when and you say dialogue piling on itself, you're talking about it actually the way that if you're in a very small space, you'll actually feel you know the sound waves will do something differently because they're bouncing off of of everything that's so close around you. Yeah, it's kind of like. You know when you get in a car and it sounds slightly different? Mm -hmm. uh, well, a submarine is worse because it barely has any soft material. It's basically all metal. Yep. So it just becomes this like resonant chamber and you just keep on hearing your own reflections and it, it just it keeps on building up on you and it's, it's very intimidating psychologically. And one of the things I found most interesting about these dives was how grueling the whole experience was. This oh, yeah. really wore them down. 25 days at sea. A dozen dives, you know, with these state-of-the-art cameras um, that are designed just for this. So obviously, there's a lot of maintenance and and staying on top of those and the lights that they build for this and Snoop Dogg, the remote remote-operated vehicle that they have uh, on a tether. James actually kept a diary of this and something referenced by journalist Paula Parisi for Wired magazine in 1998 and. It was fascinating. Among his observations from his dives, he said there were no icebergs at this time. This is September. On the way down, James was concerned about the light towers holding up. Um, and Russian pilot uh, Anatoly, you heard it in, in uh, the episode, is counting down the distance to the ocean floor as they get near. They bottom out at 12,580 feet below sea level, and they really have trouble finding Titanic. This new sonar system they installed isn't working, so they have to rely on the old technology, old 1960s technology. And then this quote from James, he writes, Anatoly parks us on the bottom. I look out my port, which is small and canted slightly to the side, and six feet ahead there's a big steel wall with rivets on it. I know it's not the hole because it's got a jagged edge on it. The walls just plunge there into the bottom. I don't even have time to react because we're drifting sideways and we're about to hit it. And then he writes, I go from not seeing it, not seeing it, not seeing it, to seeing a wall of rivets to pure adrenaline, being out of control and slamming down. It's it, it's so much adrenaline. And, and to be able to do it, you know, just sonically, right? Nothing, 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 slam. It, it It's a really cool audio experience that we were able to create right there. That That moment of nothing to huge boom. Al Giddings, you heard in the episode, made many of those dives with uh, James, and he he recounts these in our bonus interview for this episode. Uh, I went up to Northern California to visit him at his house, and uh, he showed me some of the housing systems that they built, which still are extremely impressive. The most rugged pieces of this, you know, soldered metal you'll ever see built to uh, encase cameras at that depth. Um, and this, these things were, he let me p try to pick up one of these cam uh, camera housings and j even without the camera in it, it's just insanely heavy. So Al talked about the, uh, unusually strong hurricane season that made this, you know, made the ocean currents much less predictable and recounted his fears of, uh, getting stuck or worse, crashing into the jagged metal wreckage and, uh, and puncturing the sub. Thankfully, that's not what happened because they were actually pretty... Uh, in, in a different situation than we are nowadays because they were shooting on film. Uh, yeah. Although, obviously, film is still used in cinema. Uh, but they, as they were diving, they didn't know 100% what they were getting. So it wasn't until towards the end of their whole adventure that they started getting back the film, the footage that was developed. And it, what a surreal thing, too, to be on your mm -hmm. own. You know, there's nothing else anywhere around you, the middle of the ocean, 
and have this plane appear from nowhere and uh, and make a drop of a cargo package. And, and there's actually video of this, which we are putting on some of our social media channels. You can follow Blockbuster Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. But there's video of the plane making the drop and these things, uh, you know, them starting to, to pull out the film for this. And you're right. Al Giddings said that when he saw the film footage, it was better than he expected. Um, and he knew it was it was good in the first place. He was a underwater cinematographer, so he was confident in what he'd captured. But it was even better than that. And all these shots inside of the ship that hadn't been seen by anyone in 83 years at that point. And you can understand why they ended up partying with the Russians, right? Drinking vodka yep. and music. And uh, and it was fun to teach uh, Ross <laughs> Some small right. Russian, so he could also party in our podcast. That was fun. Yep. Um, but yeah, I think I think that story-wise, it's really interesting because James comes away with this enormous sense of responsibility for this project, right? Because he's really in this perfect position where the studio was willing to give him money for all this film, yep. and he ends up making it this hybrid a romance um which he hasn't done before right if you look at all the movies that he's done but he fuses it with the, his passion for science and storytelling right so he has this hybrid project which it's i think for the first time he might have literally just felt this fire like yep. this is the big one and probably that's why it pushed the project into becoming one one of the biggest movies oh, ever yeah. made uh and it then it was his yeah, job not to screw it up. you can see the potential. And you can also see how you could screw something like that up. We will be back to talk more about the next uh, penultimate episode, episode nine already of Blockbuster. Uh, do us a favor. Help us grow by uh, sharing Blockbuster with a friend uh, or on social media, where uh, we're also sharing more behind-the-scenes materials, videos, some archival from the original sources that we referenced while making the series Blockbuster Pod on social media. For now, and for sound designer Peter Baviets, I'm Matt Schrader, and thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Blockbuster is written and narrated by me, Matt Schrader. Sound design by Peter Baviets. Original music by Fernando Arroyo Lascarain. Produced by Elena Baviets. Starring Ross Marquand. For more on Blockbuster, follow us on social media at BlockbusterPod or visit us online to support the creators at GetBlockbuster.com. Blockbuster is an original production of Epiclef Media.